All right, we are on part six, Permission to Doubt, and um, this is a series for really all of us because we all go through seasons of doubt where we struggle the goodness of God. You may even be here struggling if God even exists. And so in part six today, we're going to deal with the whole issue of miracles, and um, we're going to ask this question, do miracles happen today? And so I want to invite my friend Megan to come up. She's going to share with us a story of something that happened to you several years ago. So how are you doing, Megan? Megan's our director of high school ministry and uh, grateful for all you're doing with our students. But why don't you tell the church that story? Sure. So my junior year of high school, my youth leader at the time and I were bored one Friday evening. And she suggested that we go to downtown Worcester and see if there was anyone that we could pray for. So if you're familiar with Massachusetts at all, you know that downtown Worcester's seen better days in the past. So we were equipped with some water bottles and granola bars, and we went out to see if there was anyone we could pray for. And while we were out and about, we saw this man who was walking with a pretty significant limp. He was walking like this, and we went up to him, and we said, hey, you know, what's going on? It looks like you're having some trouble walking. And he's like, oh, yeah, and he rolls up his pant leg, and you can just see his leg is all gnarled and and the skin is all messed up. And it was, it was healed. It was clearly an old injury, but the leg was just not how it was supposed to look. And he went on to explain that he had been in an accident some years prior, and so he had trouble now moving and had pain when he was uh, walking or using his leg. So we said, hey, you know, we believe that Jesus would love to heal you right now. Is it okay if we pray for you? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we laid hands on him, and when I was praying for him, I felt some heat leave my hand, which I don't always feel when I pray for someone, but I did that time. And afterwards, we, we said, hey, you know, how you, how you doing? And he just looks at us, and he, and he shakes his leg a little bit, and then his, his face just lights up, and he's just like, what's going on? And then he starts, and he does a jig, and he starts dancing, and he's like, what's happening? What's going on? He's like, I'm not in pain. Like, like what, what just happened? And we were like, hey, we believe that was Jesus Christ, and, and he loves you, and, and he just healed you. And it was a pretty great, it was a pretty great night. Can you do that Irish jig just one more time? Just one more time. <laughs> right off the stadium. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Now, okay, since, since this series is called Permission to Doubt, I'm going to try to read your mind right now, okay? There are, oversimplification here, but there are three groups of people in this room or watching online who reacted to that story, okay? One group of you, you're like, that was a miracle, praise God, that was awesome, you just strengthened my faith. The second group, I would call you skeptical, and you're like, okay, that, that's great, I believe God can do that. But you know, maybe he was an Irish dancer, and you got him really happy, and he was kind of doing his thing. You know, maybe it was just a moment of encouragement where he was able to, to walk around. How did he do days and months and years after that? Right? You might be skeptical. And then there's a third group of you who would call yourself cynical. And you're like, that didn't happen. Or maybe it happened for a moment, but I don't think he got healed. Okay. Um, just so we're kind of defining terms properly, a skeptic would be somebody like the man who showed up with his boy who was demon-possessed to Jesus, and Jesus says, do you believe? And he said, I do believe. There's a big part of me that believes, but there's also a part of me that doesn't believe. Would you help me overcome my unbelief? So he would be a skeptic, and Jesus can work with skeptics. He's like, I only need a little bit of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, and I can work with you, and then he heals that man's 
boy. So that would be a skeptic. And then you have the cynic that's like, I mean, good luck trying to convince me because I just, I don't believe when I hear stories like that. And you have good reason why you don't believe, right? You've been burned in the past. You don't want to be gullible. Maybe you've been praying for years and years and years that God would answer your prayer for a miracle, and he has not answered. And so you have become a cynic. So today, for the next few minutes, I want to specifically talk to those of you who would refer to yourself as a cynic or maybe a super skeptic and get you to maybe be a little more open today that Yes, in fact, I do believe that God still does miracles today. Now, let's define the term. What exactly is a miracle? So I looked it up. Webster's Dictionary gives a pretty good definition of a miracle. It describes it as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Now, that's a pretty good definition, but some of you, you're thinking what I'm thinking. You're like, well, that's kind of subjective, Because what's extraordinary for you may not be extraordinary for me and vice versa. It's a little bit like subject to interpretation. So what I want to do, just just for the sake of argument, is I want to develop a baseline objective definition of miracle that I think most of you would say, okay, I can buy that. I believe that that's a good definition of a miracle. So a man who lived in 1735 by the name of Prospero Lambertini, it's just kind of a fun name to say. He later on became uh, a pope, Pope Benedict XIV, and he um, was probably maybe burned from things that he'd seen in the past or, you know, seen some fake people, false prophets, etc. He read the miracles that are described in the New Testament, and he came up with what later on became known as the Lambertini test. It was an objective definition of, yes, we can say this is a miracle, and we can identify them or distinguish them from natural phenomena. So here's the Lambertini test. Here's the objective definition of a bona fide miracle. Number one, you know, in the cases of diseases, they're serious, incurable, and unlikely to respond to treatment. So maybe there was treatment long ago, but treatment hasn't been given in quite some time, and you're just kind of stuck with this disease. Okay, number two, The disease was not one that could have resolved spontaneously. So if I get a cold and then three days later I'm better, you're not going to say, wow, that was a miracle. Number three, there was no potentially curative treatment that was given. In other words, you didn't receive medicine, you didn't get an operation, nothing. You were just healed. And then number four, instantaneous and complete healing occurred. So we see this often in the Gospels where there's a man in the synagogue Jesus shows up, and he's got this this shriveled hand, right? He can't move his hand. It's been like that for a while. There's no medication. And Jesus goes up to him and says, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored on the spot. That would pass the Lambertini test. Lazarus, who's in a grave dead for four days, is raised to life. That would pass the Lambertini test. The man who was blind for years and years, Jesus put mud on his eyes. He was able to see. That would pass the Lambertini test. So now that we're on the the same page with the objective definition of a miracle, I want to introduce to you an interesting man by the name of Peter May, who was a general practitioner. He's retired now. I think he was a pastor at one point. He's a Christian He runs a a website called skeptic.org, and fascinating website. 
Again, I, I think that this man is in many ways to be respected because he's seen a lot of fake stuff, a lot of bad stuff, and he doesn't want people to get duped. He doesn't want people to be gullible. And he has been researching miracles for 50 years. And in one of his articles, here's what he said. We actually only need one compelling example to be able to affirm that healing miracles happen today. Just one. You can be one example that passes the Lambertini test. I'll believe that God still does miracles today. And after researching all of these, like, hundreds and hundreds of cases, according to him, his conclusion was he couldn't identify a single case of a modern-day miracle. So Peter May goes on my favorite podcast, the radio show called Unbelievable, led by Justin Brierley. It's a, it's a British pop podcast. Peter May um, goes against Joshua Brown from the Global Medical Research Institute and Craig Keener, who's one of my favorite Bible scholars. He also wrote a book called Miracles in which he chronicles hundreds of miracles. And they have this debate. And Peter May essentially says, give me your best miracle. Give me your best miracle. So Joshua Brown comes up with what I would say, in my opinion, is the greatest, most objective miracle, modern-day miracle that I've ever heard of. And it's the case of a 30-year-old female who had been legally blind for 12 years from the age of 18 to the age of 30 in 1960 through 1972. And there's medical records, like you can, you can read the journal here, and she goes on to describe, uh, I walked with a cane, I went to a school for the blind, I read Braille, I could barely see your fingers if you put it right in front of my face. And one day, after being blind for 12, you know, for 12 years, one day, her, her husband, just in a moment of desperation, just decided to pray for her. And here's how she described what happened. I was totally blind. Never had I seen my husband's face or my daughter's face. I was blind when my husband prayed for me. Then just like that, after years of darkness, I could see perfectly. It was miraculous. I could see what my husband and little girl looked like. Within seconds, my life had drastically changed I could see, I could see, and her eyesight remained intact for 47 years. And you can watch, you can, you can open up the document on our BRAC Facebook page. Now, you look at this example, right, and, and I would guess that most of you in the room and those of you watching online, you're like, that's about as close as it gets to an objective miracle. There's medical records, there's eyewitness accounts. Praise God, that's awesome. So in this debate, they give Peter May the records weeks before they're to meet for this debate, and he gives the records to an eye doctor, and he examines the evidence, and during the debate, after, they, after he tries to convince him, Joshua Brown tries to convince Peter May that this was a bona fide miracle, here's his conclusion, that her eyesight that had been regained was simply a functional psychosomatic visual loss. In other words, it, it was just in her head. And again, I, I actually like this guy, Peter May. I think he's helpful. I think some of his material can help us kind of wrestle with this. But if he were here today, I would say, Peter May, you should change your website to skeptic 
skeptic.org, from skeptic.org to cynic.org. Because you have been given one of the most objective examples of a miracle, and you're like, ah, no good, no good. Now, we know when you read the New Testament that Jesus constantly warned against cynicism, right? I mean, the, the guy that gets healed of the shriveled hand, the Pharisees, it says right after he got healed, the Pharisees went out and made a plot to try to kill Jesus. <laughs> you talk about cynicism. So one day, Jesus is gathered with tax collectors and sinners, and they gathered around to hear him. So I gave this message to the middle school students on Wednesday night, and I said to them, just imagine in your lunchroom the group of people who are kind of in the corner that are, are sort of like social outcasts, and they, they talk a certain way, and they dress a certain way, and they're kind of considered to be, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of on the fringes. Those are the people that came to listen to Jesus time and time and again, mostly because they were rejected by society. Uh, they weren't often allowed at the temple or the synagogue. They were just completely rejected. But there was something different about Jesus' teaching. They heard rumors that Jesus was able to do miracles. So they show up to hear Jesus. They're skeptics, right? I don't know, but I want to hear him out. That, that's what a skeptic is. But you've got another group of people, and you can kind of hear the music. It's like, dun, dun, dun. Another group of people show up by the name of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who muttered, right? Like, I don't really know what it sounds like to mutter, but it's like, uh, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They should be eaten off in a corner by themselves, and none of my, none of my middle school kids should be going near those outcasts, right? Because we're holy and they're unholy not supposed to mix. But Jesus has them all together in one room, right? He's got the cynics, he's got the skeptics, and probably everybody in between. And he gives this whole set of teachings that Luke would record. So here's what we got. We got the parable of the lost sheep, which is, is you know, a sheep runs away, and the shepherd goes and gets the sheep, and everyone rejoices, sending the message that God cares about lost people. And then there's the parable of the lost coin. Like if you lose a coin, you're going you're gonna to get on your hands and knees in your house and you're going to search for that coin because it's valuable to you. And when you find it, you will rejoice and tell everyone, I, t- tell everyone I found my lost, lost coin. Um, parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Like the prodigal son's kind of like the tax collectors and the sinners. He takes his father's money and he squanders it with prostitutes and wild living and then he ends up in a pigsty. And then he comes to his senses and meets his father on the road where he gives him a big hug. And then you've got the elder brother who's kind of like the Pharisees. who's like, oh, you shouldn't have been so graceful for him, right? Then you've got the parable of the, the shrewd manager, which talks about personal finances. And then Jesus closes this entire set of teaching with an extraordinary story. So again, skeptics, sinners, cynics, Pharisees, they're all in the room. And Jesus tells a story, such a good story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, or he was dressed in Louis Vuitton. He ate at Ruth Chris's Steakhouse. He drove a Maserati. He lived in a gated community on Cuca Lake with a fast speedboat. I mean, this is the good life, right? This is the good life. But outside of his gate, there was a beggar named Lazarus. This is like juxtaposition. This is the other side of the coin. This is about goes from as good as it gets to as bad as it gets because he's covered in sores, and this guy longs to eat what fell 
from the rich man's table. So Lazarus is out there covered in sores thinking, maybe if I stay here long enough, I'll get a couple of scraps of the Ruth Chris T-Bone steak. Maybe I'll get a Topps donut. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get like, uh, I don't know, fill in your favorite food, whatever, uh, some good chicken nuggets or whatever. And he's out there hoping. He's hoping he's going to get some food, right? Again, this is about the worst situation you could be in because he's just begging all day. It, well, it gets even worse because even the dogs came and licked his sores. And he's like, who let the dogs out? I mean, it, it's gone from, and, you know, we got dogs. Right? You got a dog in your house. You pet them. You let them lick your sores sometimes. And you're like, oh, that kind of feels kind of good. Keep, keep licking the sores. This is not good. Like in those days... In those days, you don't, you don't pet dogs because you pet a dog, you got to go through this whole ceremonial cleansing process so that you can worship. So this is as bad as it gets, juxtaposed with, worldly speaking, as rich as it gets. Okay, so I'll, I'll illustrate it like this. you got the dog, you know, you got the rich guy, he's got all the food, and he's got the servants. The time came. When Lazarus the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. I love when scripture rhymes. <laughs> so his, his body and his mind are healed and now he's enjoying the eternal meal. So even though this is a parable, we have to assume that Lazarus probably prayed, God, would you heal me? God, would you, would you get these dogs out of here? Would you heal my source? Would you heal my mind so that I can go get a job and I don't have to beg every day? Well, eventually he died. You know, every single person that got healed in the New Testament, even Lazarus, they all eventually died, except for Jesus. And I think it's always helpful to go back to this thing we talked about during slavery a couple weeks ago, that there's the ideal that's described in Genesis 2, and Scripture's bookended with the ideal described in Revelation 21 and 22, that there will be no mourning, no pain, no crying, that all will be made new and that all will be made well. And sometimes God heals immediately. Sometimes he does it gradually. But for the believer, he does it ultimately. And we kind of live in this, this in the meantime, this already but not yet zone where there's Pain and shame and loneliness and blind eyes and buckeyes and famine and fear and war and all this, this terrible stuff in life, right? By the way, you know, we've been watching the news the past couple of weeks with the Israeli and Hamas conflict and we've been faced with terror and horrible pain and fire and people dying and we're reminded of the pain in life. And we're reminded that even in a place, this, this place right around Gaza and Israel, where Jesus walked and taught and healed and died and rose again, that 98% of the people in that area, both Israeli as well as Palestine, don't know Jesus. And that's the greatest tragedy because one day they're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the only way that you're going to have all your mourning and pain taken away is if you know Christ. So our highest priority in terms of the war in the Middle East is to pray for the Christians that they stay strong and they continue to be the light of the world because when the world gets darker, the light shines brighter. And I, I'm also reminded in this parable, as Daryl Bach says, after death, the only thing that counts is the human heart. I mean, it's a good life if you can live in Cuca Lake and have a 
gated community and eat Ruth's Chris, but, I mean, life goes by like that. As James says, it's like a mist that vanishes. The only thing that's going to matter at the end of the day is where's your heart. So the rich man died, and he's buried in hell where he was in torment. And he looked up, and he saw Abraham far away, and guess who's by Abraham's side? Lazarus. And he's like, oh, my goodness, the guy who was outside of my gate day after day after day is up there, and I'm down here. And in a moment of desperation, he called out, Father Abraham, Maybe he did a little dance on Father Abraham, would you have pity on me? And, sent, and maybe Abraham's like, you didn't have pity on everyone when you were on earth. Why are you asking for me to show pity on you? Right? Maybe that's what he's thinking. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, You received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides, all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the visual learners in the room, you know, you've got, you've got Lazarus here, and there is a, a chasm, an earthly chasm that can be crossed on this side. But once you hit death and you go to the other side, the chasm is big and it is fixed, and they literally change places. And now you have the rich man in pain, and you have Lazarus in the presence of God. And the rich, okay, so the rich man, we'll at least give him a little bit of credit here because he's, now he's like, can you, can you have him go tell my brothers, right? This is what he said. Send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers. Let them warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. Can you send them back to earth because I got five brothers whom I love and I don't want them down here. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They got the the scriptures. They got the the Jewish scriptures. Let them listen to the the word of God. And he says, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone comes back from the dead and goes to them, then they'll repent. And Father Abraham makes this extraordinary statement. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Because cynics are difficult to reach. So don't be a cynic. And you know how you soften your heart to chip away at that cynicism that we so easily hold on to, you listen to Moses and the prophets, or as we Christians would say, you you listen to the scriptures. 
Moses and the prophets and the New Testament authors. And, and you know, I, I love this verse in, in the book of Hebrews where the author says, for the Word of God is living and active. Like, it's not just a history book, though it is, but it's actually living and active. It has the potential and the ability to be like a holy jackhammer to chip away at our hearts, which so easily get hardened. It's living. It's, it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's like a it's like a jackhammer that penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is why we say all the time around here, you should read your Bible. You should read the scriptures because it can actually change your heart. So this series, Permission to Doubt, I don't know if it's been a blessing to you, but it has been a blessing to me because this past summer and really for years leading up to that, I really struggled with a lot of stuff in the Bible. I struggled with the Old Testament, the violence. I struggled with why could God ask Abraham to kill his only son. I struggled with slavery. And this past summer, I said, I, I've got to deal with this. I've got to address it. And I know if I'm going to cover it in depth like I need to, then I'm going to need to preach on it. And because you as a church are so generous and you sacrificially give to the church, which part of it goes to pay me and it gives me the opportunity to sit down for hours and wrestle with these texts, which I just have to say thank you, because as I was able to study, you know, slavery and the Israelite conquest, the Word of God started to chip away at my heart, right? And instead of me sort of shaking my finger at God and judging Him for His lack of goodness, the Scripture started to judge me. And I was able to, to look at those difficult passages and actually be blessed by them. So you should read the Bible. You should go before Moses and the prophets and the New Testament authors and say, chip away. Because we live in a world where it is so easy to be so cynical. You know, Jesus at one point said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. I love the song we're going to sing in just a few moments that says, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I can't see it, you're working. I mean, Abraham in the book of Hebrews was lauded because he was obedient to God even though he never saw the fulfillment of the promise. You and I should be obedient to God even though we may never even see the results to our obedience. God wants to work in you and maybe even if you allow him to work through you. If you'll just have the humility to say, God, I struggle with cynicism and I struggle with skepticism, but I got my hands open and I'm asking you to work in this brittle heart and to soften it that you may do what, you're, what you long to do. So last week we did Church Leaves a Building. I'm so proud of you, church. We had 300-some kids and adults serving. We spent 10000 again, because of your generosity, we were able to spend $10,000 to bless all kinds of people. And oftentimes you, you just showed up and you said, I'm here to work. Like, how can I serve? Maybe I can be an answer to somebody else's miracle today just by painting a wall or putting together a box. On one of our particular projects, um, we went into a, a facility where Certain people lived that needed a financial boost, and we provided a meal for them. And so we took a big chunk of change, and we bought um, food from Corning Catering. They came, and they brought the food. We thought a bunch of people were going to show up because last year that was the case. And this year, only six people showed up. 
which is disappointing. Got all that food, spent all that money, only six people show up. Well, fast forward, uh, on Monday morning, a woman showed up who goes around the community and feeds homeless people, and she picked up 100 bags that we created for homeless that, requ- that uh, contained toiletries and other essentials. And we said to her, hey, we got a bunch of leftover food. Do you want it? And she, she began to weep. And she held the hands of one of our church members, and she prayed with her through her tears. And this is how her prayer went. She said, I didn't know where I was going to get the food to provide the meal for them tonight, but you did, God. And so I thank you for providing and meeting this need. And she took that food, and later on that evening, this past Monday night, she served 62 people who may not have gotten a meal that evening. In my opinion, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And some of you walked away discouraged, but the thing is, you're not seeing everything that God's doing behind the scenes. You're not always going to see the results of your faithfulness. Now, I know some of you right now, okay, because, again, I've been preaching here long enough to know that we've got people all over the place. This is a controversial topic, right? That Some of you are like, well, it's just happenstance, you know? I mean, you didn't get the word out well enough, and six people came, and you had leftover, you know. I mean, you, you, you could be cynical like that. Or you could step back and say, you know what? Maybe God did something extraordinary in and through our church because of a group of people who decided to be faithful. Because I believe God, He wants to work in you. And if you so desire to say, work in me, He might even work through you. And you might even be the answer to somebody else's prayer for a miracle. So here's the question I want to leave you with. This is the million-dollar question. Does he have permission? Does he have permission to work in you and through you? Or is your cynicism getting in the way? Does he have permission, like a jackhammer, to come to your heart? That our hearts so easily get deceptive. And as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, it's beyond cure. It's a mess because we're a mess sometimes. And we've been hurt in the past, and we've been gullible, and we haven't had our own answers to miracles, and we get all hardened. But God wants to chip away at your cynicism and do a great work in and through you. Do you does he have permission to do that? Does he have permission to work in and through you? So we've got some time left in our service. And for some of you, this might be a little bit uncomfortable, but typically we grow through uncomfortable things. So here's what we're going to do for the next 15 or 20 minutes. We're going to ask some of you to come forward in prayer. And right now we're going to push the TV off to the side as the worship team comes up. You guys can come up right now. We can move the TV off. Um, During this this first song, I'm going to ask some of you to come forward in the front row and just say, I need a miracle. Tell us the miracle that you need. We've got some people um, who are ready to pray for you. And then after that song, I'm going to come back up here, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to come to the microphone to share a story of how God gave you a miracle. And then after that, we're going to close with a song that says, even though I don't see it, and even though I don't always feel it, and even though I've got an unanswered prayer, I still believe that you're working.
I still believe that you're moving. I still believe that you're in the miracle working business. And if I could quote the band Journey, don't stop believing. And don't stop praying. Don't give up. Because you serve a God who's not giving up on you. So Bethany is going to share us a story of miracle. Then we're going to do a song. And then we're going to have some of you come up and share some stories. Bethany. Bethany.